and welcome to the C Word, the Conservatives podcast. Today we're talking about human remains. I'm Jenny Mathiason, an object conservator based in South Yorkshire. I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester. And I'm Christina Rizek, an objects conservator based in Cambridgeshire. So, uh, first, uh, do we have any news? Probably not. Well, in which case, I'm just going to share a piece of news that was just in the uh, uh, in the Icon newsletter the other day, which was uh, that the Heritage Science Group is having a photo competition. So if anyone has any amazing science-y photos, you should tweet them. Um, so yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the first prize is, but uh, entrants are encouraged to submit photos with a, which capture the essence of heritage science in relation to conservation and the challenges and rewards it encompasses. Entries can be made by tweeting at IconSci, including hashtag photocomp with the tweet. So yeah, ladies and gentlemen, get your best photos on Twitter. I just wrote Is there a deadline for that? Um, slightly unsure in that they didn't actually mention it. Um, <laughs> just now, I guess. Just do it now. <laughs> just do it immediately. Do it now. Um, actually, does it say in here? Closing date for all entries is the 31st of May 2017. Good bit of news. Mm, I thought uh, today we're talking about conserving human remains, working with actual human bodies or remains in any shape or form. So do we, uh, around the table, do we have any particular experiences of working with human remains? Uh, I have a little um, in a sort of uh, previous life, previous conservation life, as it were. I was an antiquities conservator. Mm. Um, and so I've worked on uh, quite a lot of ancient Egyptian objects, uh, including human remains in a slightly limited way, if those can be counted as objects, which, of course, is one of the issues to mm. do with human yeah, remains. Yeah, quite. Um, and we were, we were talking earlier about funny stories. I'm not sure it's a funny story exactly, but it is um, kind of uh, possibly typical of... of the kind of conversations you have if you tell people you work on human remains um, but uh, my colleague Sophie Rowe and I did a private job in Durham at the Oriental Museum where we were conserving a mummy and mummy case that were going on display uh, that were going on tour for a long time in Southeast Asia and we were interviewed by BBC Radio Newcastle and the whole tone of the interview was very kind of focused on whether it was really creepy working with the dead body and um, the whole tone was very kind of, uh, you know, do you feel uncomfortable about the fact that you've got a mummy out of its tomb and you're fiddling around with it? <laughs> Wait, would, you like, would you like me to splice that clip in? Why not? Excellent. Um, I, I will put that in. <laughs> and the pair of you, you're quite convinced that you don't think there's anything particularly spooky about this. It's just a job. It's just a mummy. It's just something you're doing. You're not at all spooked by it. No, um, not really. I think when you're working on something like this, it is just another job and you don't tend to think of it as a sort of dead body or anything like that. Um, there's nothing. But it is a dead body, isn't it? It is a dead body, but there's nothing especially spooky about mummies, really. I mean, I think they're great fun to work on and we're very lucky, obviously, to be able to come to Durham and do this job here. And you're of the same view, Diana? There's nothing particularly spooky about it? Well, not really. I feel more concerned that we treat him with respect actually because he well he is a dead body and so we try and well as Christina and Sophie who are working on him now are doing and they're trying to do the best for him and that's our aim. Well there you have it two professionals Diana and Christina thank you both very much indeed. You know I was kind of taken aback because I was I was all kind of primed to talk about uh, to talk seriously uh, really about how the, you know about the conservation we were doing and the kind of techniques and ethical issues and stuff like that and really all this interview I wanted to talk about was how spooky mummies were mm. uh, and uh, I feel like I didn't do a particularly great job of dealing that but with that but luckily Diana the conservator at the Oriental Museum at the time um, did a great job of kind of explaining um, that they are museum objects but they're also people um, and that we, as conservatives, do our best to treat them with dignity and respect. Um, but it was kind of eye-opening because, of course, you know, mummies are a thing, <laughs> really. Um, and so it's quite hard to shake that when mm. you're working on 
I find it interesting how differently people react depending on the type of human remains that you're interacting with. Um, so, for example, mummies, people are very fascinated. People would love to know more, preferably if there are any gory stories. Um, if it's things like uh, excavated bones, people care a lot less, but they still think it's a bit fascinating. Um, if it's things made of human hair or teeth, people are grossed out. People don't want to hear any yeah. of that. People yeah. are instantly going, that is disgusting. Why on earth do you have that? Which is a really interesting um, reaction, I feel. This I is- saw a, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I saw a book in a local museum, local to me, um, that was bound in the skin for a murderer who was hanged for a oh, particularly gory oh, wow. and notorious local murder. So, And they obviously thought that this was, you know, the best thing to do with him was to bind to. <laughs> bind a book with his skin um after he'd been flayed um and um and that's got all kinds of interesting ethical yeah around it. although with, with some things when it comes to um the use of human human remains as materials i sometimes wonder if it's if it's at least to some degree people being thrifty for example where it's the case of yeah. you cut your hair you cut your children's hair <clears throat> suddenly you have lots of hair lying around why not weave it into something mm. um you know you, whilst there will be symbology and you know loads of that sort of thing involved as well sometimes maybe it was just another material that was accessible in times of hardship for example and then people of course kept um, kept hair often in lockets and that sort yeah. of thing uh, which also counts as human remains also of course blood samples on slides and that Lovely. sort of thing which yeah. is also human tissue it's interesting because that's not what people think of yeah. First, of course they, they they don't think of hair in lockets or no. you know it is it is really the mummies the bones the uh i guess remains what what remains of a human after they die mm-hmm. normally rather than the stuff that can be given up without somebody having to die first. Yeah. so mm-hmm. i wonder if that's also sort of an aspect of it mm. um, uh, i don't, I, I don't I think most so. people would be that grossed out by hair or teeth or toenail clippings <laughs> oh, i think i'd be grossed out by toenail clippings <laughs> yeah i think sure. the, the science I mean, i've never had to conserve those no, no, that's true. But. that being said there was that really interesting uh, there was a video posted recently about uh conserving frostbitten toes i can't remember whose toes they were oh, yes. but it was fascinating and they were cleaning the toes and i was really interested to see that you know a that it, it was a widely available uh, video and uh, they they were showing it yeah. and sharing it, and uh, B just that oh <laughs> toes, <laughs> <Someone's> toes. <laughs> uh, which is a, a really amusing reaction for mm. myself to be honest. I mean, I loved that they showed it. I loved it. It was great. I think the science museum have um, a really really good. It's a really good example of the storage of human remains because um, they have a room a dedicated quite a large dedicated room in their storage facility um that is all tyvek covered cabinets full of boxes of their human remains and they're all sensitively covered and they're all labeled and the room is labeled and of this room contains human remains and everything is you know properly sensitively that's described a lot better than um, most yeah quite and the the thing that i found interesting when you said oh the s- blood on slides they that's where they keep their their human tissue slides and any they're very very much up on what can can be considered as human mm. remains um which is really right on i think and current as a, I mean, as you would imagine from the science museum but mm. that's my sort of um most recent uh, look at how human remains can be stored in their most sort of most desirable storage of. Mm, I like that. I, I I have a I have another story. Um, so personally, I've not necessarily worked very much with human remains. In that I have worked on objects that have human hair on them, uh, ethnographic objects that have teeth. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I've also worked with. Well, obviously, but. I've worked with human bones, human skulls, that sort of thing. But um, as far as mummies and full bodies go, I've only condition checked them. I've not done any extensive work on them. But something that this uh, storage, um, the the mention of storage brought to mind was that once upon a time, I worked in a basement, uh, which was a store. 
I'm not going to say where. And there was a mummified head. It was the only remains of this poor, poor chap. Um, and he was sitting in a see-through Tupperware box so that he could, he was very sensitively padded and put in and labelled and everything. But he had a clear lid so that he could always look at you, which in some ways oh. is incredibly sweet. In other ways, when you're lone working in a basement <laughs> far, far removed from any other human, it is one of the more unsettling things, <laughs> I have to say. It's reminded me of... Um... Uh, famously of Jeremy Bentham, oh, uh, yes. whose body is in UCL, where mm. I trained as a conservator. And he just sits there in his cabinet in UCL and um, looks out at all the students coming past him. And um, he's kind of, you know, very much part of the community, maybe not, <laughs> maybe in a slightly more comforting way than a, a head in a Tupperware box. But um. <laughs> I, I, I will stress I made friends with the head in the Tupperware box. Um <laughs> I slightly insensitively gave, gave him a nickname because I felt that he deserved to have a name. Uh, in my case, it was Bob. Uh, so every morning I would say, good morning, Bob. How are you today? And every evening I would say, good night, Bob. See you again tomorrow. Uh, which somehow helped. <laughs> I think, yeah. How, Did how? he ever reply? <laughs> no, it was a very one-sided. That's another story. <laughs> very one-sided conversation. <laughs> how in- Out of interest, how old is your example? Um your human remains example John uh, Jeremy Bentham. oh Jeremy. Jeremy sorry yeah uh, I feel like I ought to know off the top of my head when he died but it would be in uh, the first couple of decades of the 19th century I should think I think UCL okay. was founded yeah. in about 1820 okay okay I'm interested because when I was I was researching for this I was looking up the um, the most recent because obviously the question is how do you feel about the display of human remains and then how do you feel about you know how recent is too recent as human remains when does it become not historical when does it just become really gory mm. um, and the most recent ones that I found were um, uh, Lenin displayed in Moscow mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 1924 and slightly earlier um, I can't remember her name the Sleeping Beauty um the capuchin catacombs um she died in 1920 uh, and her father had her preserved and displayed in those catacombs um and i think she's one of the most recent ones very famously fabulously preserved um from 1920 which is seems really very recent to me i i think my original kind of unformed understanding was that you didn't really get mummies that recent Mm, Um, well actually uh, I don't know if you heard of uh, Gunther von Hagen's the German artist I was just going going to say (laughs) who developed a a way of plasticising bodies Mm. I went to that exhibition actually I'm amazed that I didn't consider that to be mummification actually that's very interesting. interesting why not? I don't know because of is course it because it of the is. modern way of doing it it's modern materials is it 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 may well be a number of things the thing that springs to mind sort of because it's so recent and the context is very different and also because the people who are exhibited in this form um agree uh, Sounds awful. Agreed to it. They weren't forced to agree. Well, they were sure. organ they, donors. They do- yeah, they, they donated yeah. themselves for this exact purpose. So it seems more kind of self-aware than you'd normally expect a mummy to be. Because obviously, you know, you can say, "I want to donate my body to science," but you know, how in how many cases are the mummies that we see and normally would would describe as museum object? mummy specimens um they are unintentional really they they didn't know themselves um unless it's you know bits and pieces of scientists that say i want somebody to use my nerve system as this so that's interesting i yeah i I had completely uh, having loved that exhibition at the time i didn't even consider it as mummification that's really interesting i think um with that kind of exhibition actually it does get around a lot of the 
concerns that we have um, or a lot of the sort of things that make us uncomfortable about putting human remains on display Presumably, because these yeah. are people who have explicitly consented exactly. yes. to have that done with their bodies and so on and of course you know museums are all about ownership um, and so on we have registrars who kind of track down the provenance of objects and so on and, and museums um, you know need to make sure that they have proper title that they own these things and so on how can you own another person's body I think a lot of people feel kind of uncomfortable about mm. that even if mm. a person is dead uh, hopefully the person is dead otherwise it would be slavery but, uh, but I think there's, there's kind of issues of ownership because obviously they're not just objects and I think the the, the other thing that makes me uncomfortable is is privacy mm. um, you know with with these things being on display um, human remains traditionally in museums yeah particularly the very famous ones um where people you know people flock to see them and the children point and go ooh, ooh, and that's in a way i mean some museums thrive on the fact that they display human remains and that people come to see them because they are gory um but it's not sort of I mean, we we could say it's not best necessarily best practice, but it's also actually, I suppose, frowned upon by some other people. You know, you have half the population saying, oh, wow, let's go and see it. And the other half going, this is immoral. I don't want to see that. Um, I think I think for me, the effect of of being in a huge crowd of people all kind of gawping is actually to kind of dehumanize. Yeah, absolutely. People, um, I mean, I, I'm I've been to Egypt quite a bit and, and to the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Mm. Um, which is full of tourists gawping at dead bodies. And it, it it becomes harder to remember that these were people, funnily enough, yeah. um, because of the way they're so sort of uh, overtly on show and people are gawping at them in a way that you could never do with a person mm. who was alive. I think um, I, yeah, I think I have a, um, my, I'd say this is my most memorable uh, interaction with human remains example is simply visiting the um, Tyrol Museum of Archaeology uh, in Bolzano. Um, I went to it and understood it to be the Mummy Museum, but it's it was a um, an exhibition called The Dream of Everlasting Life in two thousand and nine. Um, they are the the uh, the owners of Otzi the, the Otzi Mummy, um, oh, yes. mm. and. That exhibition was really, it was very frank that they, all of these mummies, they were, they were out, they weren't, you know, sensitively covered or, uh, or screened in any way, but it, the manner of exhibition was very sensitive in, I mean, of course, this was before, I went to see this before I was a conservator, so I felt that the low lighting levels were very sensitive. Ah, yes. <laughs> but of course, they were <laughs> pragmatic. Um, but it was very, because of the, the space and the silence, I suppose, in the museum, it, was, it wasn't like a sort of gawping show. It was more, um, uh, more reverent, I suppose. Um, and not seeing in particular, I think part of the, the, the way that he is displayed um is particularly humanizing because the it's primarily focused on the things that he was found with um his clothing and the analysis and the all of the science that has gone into his study over the years um displayed around him but also um kind of sadly he is displayed in what they call on the website as a refrigerated cell um, oh, and it's so a sort tragic. of metal tank that he metal tank room that you um, that he he lives in, and you you go and he can only be viewed through one or two small glass windows. Um, and now, obviously, I understand that to be exceptional preservation, mm, yeah. <laughs> and you know, beautiful environmental controls, and ooh, look at that monitor, etc. But it it's sort of the fact that only one or two people can view him at a time sort of makes the whole thing a bit more intimate mm. um, and a bit more respectful because obviously through through deterioration, they have needed to really rein in the number of people who can actually see him. That's interesting have, because I, I feel like that's <coughs> um, 
very much the way now is to limit the amount of people who can see a body at a time. Uh, also making people aware beforehand yeah. that they're going to see a body. So I'm thinking the bog bodies in Denmark where there's like a special little hut that you go into and it's it's very much a couple of people at a time. It's more uh, almost uh, sitting down to contemplate yeah. with with the dead person, which is really an interesting way of doing it. And similarly, a, a recent exhibition in uh, in Cambridge where they kind of had this little hidden area with uh, the body of a girl, well, the bones of a girl, um, who died young, and you just you had to go into it. You had to choose it. You had to choose to mm. go into her and uh, stand there with her for a while, which I thought was a really nice way of doing it. Actually, it's more yeah, definitely more contemplative. And actually, after listening to um, your interview with Barbara, I feel like this is a really good feed in mm. because her whole attitude was really very beautiful. Her attitude to working with human remains is really beautiful. Mm. Um, in this same respectful, reverent, contemplative kind of way. I'd also like to say that uh, um, that particular mummy that you, you mentioned, uh, Otzi, he's uh, probably one of many reasons why I, as a small, creepy child, really got into history and science and uh, probably ultimately archaeology and conservation because he was big news when I was little. There were documentaries mm. on TV all the time about all the magnificent things they found out from examining him. He's a special man. Yeah, he's me. yeah, he's a really wonderful example, actually. Really brilliant. I want. I, I wonder because you know you've been talking about um, preservation. Um, Ertzi is a is it was sort of preserved accidentally, mm. of course. Yeah, in the, in the ice. Um, but and there are sand mummies. There 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 are mummies that have been preserved accidentally by kind of natural processes but then of course there are also mummies that have been deliberately preserved in a way um in an attempt to make the body last forever to 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 get immortality and i was kind of thinking about you know whether that should make any difference to our approach as conservators because i i sort of feel that maybe there's a difference between preserving a mummy that was always intended to last forever anyway then you're just kind of carrying out the yeah um, embalmer's work <laughs> and kind of supporting that and whether with other bodies whether it's in a way interfering with the natural processes of decay that would otherwise happen after death and so on and whether actually preservation and conservation is is sort of well yeah interfering with mm. that and there are, of course, groups that very, very much um, argue that, you know, we should rebury, rebury the dead when possible. Mm. So there are pagan groups and there are Christian groups, um, all of whom would argue that it would be more kind to uh, rebury bones and other remains uh, found rather than keeping them in museums, for example. So there are certainly voices that do voice those concerns already. Yeah, I think it's it comes under one of. I mean, there's so there's hours and hours worth of chat topic on what should we conserve and what shouldn't we conserve from mm, yeah. you know, <laughs> from human remains to modern art that is supposed to decay mm, um, yes. by the you know <clears throat> by the uh, desire of the artist and it's uh, ooh <laughs> mm, yeah. there's so many things that we could discuss and many different ways that we could look at it. Um, and it's, I suppose, case by case and, and a conversation. Mm. Well, perhaps now would be a good time to uh, listen to Barbara Wills, who kindly did an interview with me, and uh, she works quite a lot with human remains. The following is an interview with conservator Barbara Wills that took place in May 2016. All views and reflections are our own and do not reflect the values of our employers. What do you do, Barbara? I work as a conservator. I, I specialise in the treatment of objects made from organic materials. More recently I've specialised in the treatment of human remains and within that um, naturally mummified human remains. It is a niche. It's, 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 a, not it's many a subsection of, of a subsection, which is great. So how long have you been a conservator? Um, many, many a long year, about 40 years now. What type of human remains have you worked on? Has it been small scale, like human hair, and then full range over to actual, full complete bodies? 
Yes, just about everything, I think. I mean, um, uh, back in the day, uh, I worked on, um, again, uh, mummified human remains in a very interventive way. And these are the days then when, if a wrist was detached, you stuck it on again mm. with Paraloid B72. And that's that was that. Um, now we're finding that you don't need to do that. You can actually support it in such a way that you don't need to use invasive adhesives and consolidants. And, and I think I had a bit of a conversion about five years ago um, when uh, I realised that the human body isn't another artefact. I mean, I'd always known that. But, yeah. but in, a very, in a way that influenced what I did... I realised that um, I was working on a group of human remains. But I thought, in an ideal world, what is it that these dead individuals would like to tell us and how would they like to tell us? Uh, And the answer is they want to tell about uh, their tooth decay, their abscesses, their age, their sex, what they wore. Um, their internal organs, because I'm talking about the preservation of soft tissue as well as hard tissue, and everything else that will come up in the next decade, two decades, three decades, four decades. Um, And I'd been reading about how, um, you know, in theory, our conservation materials, they go in, they come out. Well, they don't. No. Uh, Not in the way that we, not in this simplistic way. And it actually makes it quite difficult to do certain analyses. Uh, for example, if you want to, um, what's the word, rehydrate certain internal organs, if you've treated it with B72, oh, you're no. not going to get uh, the lung tissue in three dimensions again. It's just not going to happen. So I thought, well, in a perfect world, I wouldn't um, treat with a consolidant or an adhesive. I wouldn't even use a solvent on it because solvents can... Um, uh, influence such things as the proteins in the DNA. Mm. And this was uh, quite new to me, that even if you put IMS on it or um, white spirits, um, you're actually altering by the fact that it's been in contact with a solvent. So I thought, well, can I care for these individuals totally safely in a totally non-interventive way? And I thought, well, I can't do that, but I will start and see how far I get. Um, and that's the another one sort of great thing about being overly optimistic and hopeful is start with what you think to be the ideal. Compromise later if you have to, but start with the ideal and then work your way back. And in truth, I did end up um, uh, supporting 40 naturally mummified human remains in a completely non-interventive manner, in a way safe, safely to be studied, uh, But with one exception, I did intervene, and that was with um, skin tissue that had um, that was loose. It was no longer attached to the long bone, uh, though it looked as though it had once been in association with a long bone. Uh, And it was fragmentary, and um, um, and I could make joins, and the joins were helped by the fact that there were marks on the skin. And under infrared reflectography, you could see that they were tattoo marks on the skin. And then the question was, if you want to see the tattoo design, do you want me to recreate it in two or three dimensions? Um, To which the answer was, yes, please, because it would be quite difficult to get a three-dimensional understanding of of that particular body modification procedure without joining uh, so how to join um, and what I did is uh, I just used the end of a pin and the tiniest bit of very th- sticky Clucel G hydroxypropyl cellulose dotted along the wafer thin thinner than a wafer uh, bits of skin extremely fragile hold them together but they're so fragile so light that they stick together um, so there was intervention on that but tenth of a millimetre of wow. the edge, some of the edges, and beyond that, nothing. So it's not going to contaminate. 
but you're able to see something more complete in terms oh. of the um, tattoo. And I don't know why I'm I don't know why I'm always surprised. You know, I look back a thousand years, two thousand years, three more, and then you think, oh, isn't that amazing? Look, they've got better fingernails than I have. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> why am I surprised? <laughs> yeah, no, it's I shouldn't be surprised. No. But I think it's just the familiarity of it that, oh my goodness, you're you're practically a modern modern human, and then you think, well, they are. Well, of course, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in, in, in some ways, they they'd be more sophisticated sophisticated than we. Yeah. You know, in some ways, they. But you know, maybe they had better songs, better stories. Who yeah. knows? That was very amazing. So, yeah, no, I've got a lot from um, working with the dead, but it did take a little bit of time to get used to them because. I had applied for a cloth workers fellowship, which meant that I would have two years to work exclusively on the project. Mm-hmm. And so with great joy, I, I realised that I'd got the senior fellowship. And here I had 41 um, naturally mummified human remains to work on. So I you know, get the material, I set up the temporary studio in room 60 and, um, you know... I, get on board and get other people on board and and then all the fuss and then it's just me and and nobody else and it took me a little while to get used to that it took me three weeks wow it was three weeks when i was left alone with my um what was going through your mind why was it so hard i thought i'd be fine because i'd worked on human remains forever uh it seemed um but it was undiluted human remains. Mm. Usually when you work, you're working on this, you're working on that, you do something else. And now it was only that. And now it was only human remains. That's interesting. And that was quite a focus. It was a quite intense thing. So I developed a ritual. I Did said you? Yes. When I um, put on my, uh, uh, my apron and my gloves and sometimes my face mask uh i would do that before i went into their space mm-hmm. then i'd work on them and then i'd say good night to them when i went away again and that was um yeah that was my way that you say that is really interesting to me because that's such a human behavior to make a little ritual of it because i found it important yeah. and um I know when I worked with my colleague, Colin Johnson, years ago, when I first started work with human remains. Um, and it was odd for me because, um, I mean, my family would tell you that I was a very frightened child. Skeletons, terrified skeletons, anything like that. Oh, I wouldn't, would never go to a horror movie, you know, it's completely. So, you know, for people who know me way back, to see me now mm. so comfortable with the dead, I've come a further than most people i think in, oh, in those amazing. terms i was the right opposite i was a creepy child ah you like that kind oh, of oh yes i was definitely yeah. a tiny wednesday adams <laughs> all the time yeah yeah but it was a, there was a point where you just had to make friends with them you know yeah. or and now that's being over again oversimplifying it yeah. to say you make friends with them but one of the ways with the colin said he said well if they have names, use their names. Yeah. So today I was working on Nesta Wedjat. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I know Nesta Wedjat. I've seen, I've encountered her or one of her coffins yeah. before. And, um, and you know a little bit about her life and, and how old. She was about 40 when she died. And, you know, you know a few things about her. And um, so to use a name seems important when you can. Um, and actually the other, at the other, let's so fast forward so i've been working on these um human remains for two years and i'm just working on the last one and i've created a lovely soft um support for the head of one of them he's got a beard uh and he's got the the remnants of um the eyeball and the optic nerve and i'm really excited because i think it's really interesting to Mm. have this something and um and and i've just i'm just laying him down and making him comfortable and I felt warmth at that point. I thought, oh, here you go. And it just felt yeah, like this caring, this caring thing. Yeah. And this, you see, that runs right through. We're conservators. We do care. Yeah, yeah, we do. But it's always assumed that we care in a very detached way. 
Yes. But sometimes I think it's totally okay that we feel a bit closer to them. It's fine because, yes, we're detached. We have to be thoughtful and yeah. planned and all the rest of it. But I, I and, think well, and we do know that we're in a museum. We know that this is you you you're part of the collection that sort of thing but yes and i know they're dead yeah. you know I, i haven't forgotten the fact no <laughs> they're no, not we, dead. no we haven't that's all right yeah um but nonetheless there's this um you have a you can have a warmth for a little object that you work on you yeah, know quite. beautifully worked that's the true. library and you think oh look how wonderful this elephant is mm. and somebody must have really observed an elephant to make an elephant like this mm. um so you you can feel the hands of the maker through the thing that you're working with yeah definitely and sometimes it's almost as though their hands touch your hands yeah. and it's a lovely thing and it's a very special thing and it's a very special thing to conservation uh it's our private little joy that we sometimes touch the hands of the makers yeah um in a way that nobody else does you know and um and how much more special it is when you touch the hands of the people themselves yeah. very yeah. true um so so i'm very comfortable with working with them and that they are in a collection and that they are studied and that they are cared for cared for mm-hmm. so I, i'm entirely content with that i i felt barbara brought out really um beautifully the sort of ambiguity mm. that the all the ambiguities that there are when you're working with human remains um and there there are just so many kind of tensions that it brings out really i think between kind of superstition um this is a dead body in the room with me i'm on my own in a in a store full of dead bodies um and rationality which is just kind of saying well you know that they're, they're dead <laughs> you yeah. know i'm just a conservator doing a job um i think there's tensions between um the need to just get the job done as any other job and uh work professionally on conserving a museum object but then also the need to respect the mm. dead and work as respectfully and, as possible yeah and to cope with one's own um anxieties and um contemplations i suppose and what that brings out um yeah. in yourself yeah i felt the same that she I mean I love Barbara. I think that she's wonderful. I've worked with her briefly before and she's she approaches a lot of things in conservation with the same sort of level-headed calm and and kind feeling. Um and the, I suppose that that may well have come from her her work with human remains and the need to be calm and contemplative and measured in in her attitude. Um but the, i i found it interesting that she developed her own way of dealing with it as a job that was sort of sort of perfectly in keeping with the the natural ethical standpoint that you know the thanking of the time and the the saying good night and you know treating remains as human and as present and entities mm. rather than just sort of this is an object on a slab it's it's a very intimate kind of relationship that you end up having with mm. these people there's there's a kind of familiarity um, it's, which it's true and uh, you, you you which you get with any object that you spend a lot of time working on of course yeah. but, but i think because they were people um then 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 there is this kind of sense of familiarity of intimacy and so on and and um you have to kind of you know sort of negotiate between that and and this very intimate situation but then wanting to enable that person to keep their dignity or you know i mean some of some of the things that um that we could do <laughs> to these bodies are potentially quite kind of undignified and disrespectful if we're not careful and of course some uh, of the things done in the past have been yeah yeah of course like unwrapping mummies of course is mm. is is you know one of the most famous examples or oh, indeed adding a few bones here and there just because <laughs> i think you should probably have more bones than that <laughs> yeah that doesn't quite look right yeah i mean I, I think it was also interesting that barbara talks about caring for these mm. people um and we we always talk about care of collections caring for objects and so on and it's often used kind of metaphorically i suppose but you know we are actually caring for people 
when we're dealing with human remains. And it's it's the similar sort of care that um, you might have for living people as well. Um, so as, as, as you said, um, Jenny, Barbara, thanking them and um, being courteous and laying them down gently and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I even, I mean, I, I've never had, obviously I've, I've said I have never had the opportunity to work with human remains, but I do feel that when I work with animal remains, I do um, have a tendency to feel quite tender towards them and, and to sort of humanize them in a way and to, to think of them as entities themselves. Um, and that I think is, that's an interesting, it's an interesting way of thinking and possibly, you know, different groups of people, um, might be more, might tend more towards doing that even more than I do. Um, and I wonder if the display of animal remains will become, you know, mummies, for example, will become more of a, a contentious issue as well. Mm. I think it might be a problem for the Natural History <coughs> Museum. <laughs> well, quite, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested where we where we draw these lines. Um, you know, what about um, the kind of uh, displays which have row upon row of butterflies pinned to a board for example or sort of you know animals that are essentially there just to provide type specimens mm. um, what about the very kind of systematic museums either of uh, medical museums for human remains or zoological museums um, where they're taking a very kind of clinical detached um, kind of taxonomic view if you like and they're not treating them as former living creatures at all in some sense they're there for study and research and understanding of the natural world i'm interested also in um where we draw the line um chloe you were mentioning in the science museum that anything even slides with blood smears and so on um anything with any kind of human remain involved goes into that special section of storage mm. um i mean I, I how do we draw the line anything man-made has human remains on it actually i suppose um, there's yeah it's it's interesting as in a way um do conservators do these things for example store sensitively or cover sensitively for the sake of others or do they do them for themselves or do they do them for the purpose of being respectful so i mean you could say there are people, many people, who walk, will walk into a natural history museum and be extremely upset at seeing all of the dead things around. But, you know, as conservators, we could be as, you know, animal-loving as we like, and we're just we're just not going to be as as distressed by that sort of thing. And similarly with human remains, many conservators will just not be distressed. But... I I suppose I'm thinking about um, I've I've seen ceramic pots with um, hairs trapped in the clay. Oh, I see. Mm. Oh, technically in that's human interesting. Rain. I'm I'm wondering about uh, where people have handled things and left their DNA or no. You know, I'm oh, just wondering. Oh, more where, importantly, I mean, this is a kind of reductio. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, I'm 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 into this now. Um, I I was thinking. So how about when uh, when we possibly use saliva swabs on something? <laughs> and leave a bit of of DNA behind (laughs) then we're adding some human remains to that even though we're not dead yet (laughs) I feel like we're being quite postmodern with this there we are we've gone properly off the walls now (laughs) well I mean this is one obviously for the gloves episode later on as well oh it's quite we're doing our best oh leaving our disgusting human remains on everything (laughs) but by wearing gloves we're doing our best not to leave our human remains on things not to contaminate them mm, um, yes and i just wondered if there's a difference between kind of accidental remains if you like mm. um, I, I'm, I, I'm sure i would argue know, left hair or spit or whatever all over objects mm. i'd argue that there is uh, a notable difference depending on whether there's purpose to it or not that's probably why i would consider slides with deliberate blood samples to definitely be very much human remains in some ways because someone's done that it's not someone cut their hand once on a piece of glass and there's a bit of blood left over. That's also important. I mean, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't clean it off. I'd consider it part of the object if it's, you know, not my blood. Uh, if it's, you know, historic blood, I would probably go, oh, no, let's leave that if at all possible because it tells a story about the object, blah, blah, blah. There's also um, biohazards as well. It might be well, that there, there is that the fact well. that, I mean, I think that that is 
likely to be the case with quite a lot of the science museum mm. uh, attitude is that quite a lot of things will have biological hazards involved with them. That's a good point. Um, so there are a number of different reasons that we could, well, we could need to store and display sensitively. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about um, military uniforms, in fact. Um, you oh. were saying, Jenny, about not cleaning this yes. stuff off. But, of course, with, with that sort of thing, um, I think, is it Nelson's uniform? Mm, yes. Um, that uh, still has bloodstains on it. And um, obviously you wouldn't clean that because that's such a critical, integral part of the yes, uniform. Exactly. But, but, Some of but that staining that is, is paint as human well. Remain. In fact, this is the very first time I've ever really thought of it in that light, actually, as a human remain rather than as in a significant stain. Yes, <laughs> yes that's quite. Significant staining. <laughs> Which is how it would appear in reports. Yeah. <laughs> um, I see. I have an interest in um, how the context of death affects the ethics of display um so for example do we have examples of um mummification from say mass murder events and obviously if we've got you know nelson's coat with possibly trace blood on it well now that, we're in like that's from holocaust memorial yeah type well exactly it's teeth and yeah exactly so do we that is obviously very different i mean you could have a, a, a holocaust teeth will be far more or arguably far more um upsetting to people and mm. ethically problematic than having a an egyptian mummy displayed um because yes. of the not only because of the the length of time between events but also the context of death and the hideousness that surrounded it so i'd be interested i, I think it'd be interesting research to find the ways that these things are displayed and the ways that they have been studied and worked with depending on whether they have been an individual has been murdered or died naturally mm. Yeah, no, it is interesting. I thought I saw something quite interesting at the, I want to say, Roman Army Museum. Um, <clears throat> they had a little CSI corner where they didn't show any human remains at all. They showed the outline of a person and so, you know, a very fictional version, so generic woman outline or something similar. Uh, but they told, they told the story of how that person had been found and why they thought it might not be a normal death, for example. And then they encouraged people to go at, at the CSI style and think of, how do you think this child ended up under the floors of a Roman house rather than where people were traditionally buried? Why was the child hidden in a house? Was it hidden? Or was it just they wanted to keep it close by? Mm, mm. Or in, There was all these different ways of thinking, which was really interesting. So it makes you think of uh, the remains found as a human with a story that may or may not be gruesome but without actually showing the human race, yeah which was I, I thought was an interesting tack that is interesting and i suppose um my instant reaction to that was but you wouldn't do that for something more recent would you if no. there was a, if there was recent human remains you know even in the last hundred years mm. of a dis uh, you know a, a mystery death of some sort or a mystery finding you wouldn't then have a sort of like slightly gold star for the one who gets it kind of how no, do no, you no. think this person no, was found horribly true. named <laughs> it, again it's the it's the step back in yeah, time yeah we're separated yeah, from there's the, enough time the event between. yeah although there are interesting uh of course criminal history museums and that sort of thing oh yeah uh where we've got sometimes quite recent uh, usually solved murders yeah for where they might show something that is say bloodstained or um similar where something has been found or something was a vital clue or something um and i mean that's that's yeah. a, a whole other level mm -hmm. of uh, this is recent and, and that is a real person's blood yeah you know yeah but again it, i guess it's the closeness in time that makes it almost more real as opposed to uh very far back yeah absolutely but again i'm, time I'm and more intent. inclined to think of human remains as human remains when they are probably more complete and i say that because sometimes if if human remains are more of an ingredient 
<laughs> I <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Then I I I forget. Well, I don't, I forget as such. Of course, I'm aware of it. If you know, if the documentation is important, it's yeah, it's less um, emotional. Yeah, and I think I well, I'd be. I mean, from a legal point of view, I'd be interested to know um, how the the licensing is affected by whether you know whether something has fingernails or eyes or something. Or you know, mm. obviously we've got um, human remains from skin to hair also being covered under the human remains licensing. Yes. Um, my facts aren't clear on this at all. I should have researched it. Um, it's surprisingly difficult to find clear answers because I've tried. I see. Um, and there are advisory panels you can go to. You uh, can probably ask the Museums Association to point you in the right direction if you have these sorts of questions. If you have a registrar, they should know. If you don't have a registrar, which loads of us don't, um, there are ways of finding out, but it's not a five-minute Google kind of thing. No. It's uh, going to the right people, finding the right people, asking the right questions. Uh, it would it would take some time to find the right answer. But there are people out there who can help. It's mm. just uh, quite a lot of um, asking around that's involved. But there are advisory panels. There are some guidance documents. And, uh, yes. This probably affects quite a lot of the smaller scale museums. You know, if you if mm. you're not really sure what's in your collection, then you stumble upon human remains. Yeah, quite you're not you able to afford the licensing. Yeah, and um, what what would you do with them? Yes, would you... I'm not sure what kind of costs are involved or anything. Um, I understood it to be in the regions of region of thousands of pounds, mm, but yeah, that, then you would be boned. Wouldn't yeah, you? <laughs> I'm allowed to say boned. Um, <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so that that would be problematic, to yeah. say the least. Um, so I've had museums in the past, when they found human remains, solve it by depositing... Well, no, not depositing, because that suggests that you've um, uh, relinquished ownership. No, um, asking another big museum with a licence to kindly store the particular human tissue yes. in their stores, on their premises in order for it to be covered, uh, which I think is a work way around. But I honestly don't know. I think I, I've heard that before, yeah. Mm. I think that's a good way around it. But there are many, there but are then, so many small museums that yeah. don't also, have that option. No, and also you'd need to probably know the right people yes, and yeah. have a really generous museum that says, yeah. yes, we will take your things into an extremely crowded store yeah. and store them for you because indefinitely, which is sometimes a really big ask. Absolutely. Or I, there, was, there was something that um, Barbara made me think of, that it's not directly human remains, but I suppose because it's soaked in the various resins used in embalming, it is technically probably partially human remains. I worked very closely on a mummy mask for oh, yes. um, a couple of months, some years ago, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, it's uh, a cartonage mask. That uh, had to be reshaped and oh, oh, it has a mold on it and that sort of thing. So you, it needed some TLC. It was a wonderful experience. But I did spend a lot of time staring at this woman's face. Now, while you may very well think that, oh, it's a cartonage mask, that means it's a generic face that probably didn't resemble the woman at all because these were basically mass produced. You would be correct, but... This was still placed on her face. I mean, even if there were wrappings in between, uh, still probably contained some of her body fluids. Um, and I've spent a lot of time looking at that face and then also almost crawling inside of it because I needed to get inside and, and you know, decontaminate a little bit because the mould was everywhere. Mm. And I, it's an extraordinary thing to spend so much time with a three-dimensional portrait of someone that was part of their funerary assemblage. That's It's an incredible and oddly powerful feeling where it's almost like you become friends. Yeah. Because you spend so much time with us that you start to think of it as the person it used to represent, which is really fascinating. But more of a psychological note than anything else. Yeah. We are a privileged bunch. We certainly are. It's really cool. Right. So I think that's, uh, that's probably plenty 
our human remains talk for today if you have any thoughts views comments corrections anything like that let us know you can find us at the seaward podcast on twitter or you can email us at seawardpodcast at gmail.com please let us know if you have anything anything to say we love hearing from you Today I'm going to talk about slender, thread-like outgrowths from the follicles of the skin of mammals. That's right, I'm going to talk about hair, and in particular about the conservation of hair, which is the subject of a book published in 2015 by Archetype Publications. The Conservation of Hair is a collection of papers from a conference on the same subject that was held at the Horniman Museum in 2014. The conference was organised by the Horniman Museum, Icon Ethnography and Textiles Groups and NATSCAR, that's the Natural Sciences Collections Association. Looking at the original conference programme, it seems that a couple of interesting looking papers given at the conference were not published in this volume, including one on recolouring faded taxidermy and another one on hair in modern and contemporary sculpture. That's a bit of a shame, but the papers that remain are still really interesting. As this is a collection of conference papers, It isn't, and in fact it can't be, a comprehensive look at the conservation of hair. Conference collections are always a bit random, really, and dependent on who happens to submit papers to a particular conference. Also, like a lot of conference uh, conference paper collections, I found that this book suffered from a certain amount of repetition. For example, I was a bit sick by the end of being told that hair is made from keratin. Nevertheless, the papers that are included represent a good spread of subjects, from hair ID techniques to cleaning taxidermy fur, and from hair-eating pests to the conservation of human hair wigs. It also covers all hair, both animal and human, but I'll be focusing on this review mainly on human hair, as that's the subject of this podcast episode. I was particularly interested to find out how this book would treat the differences between human and animal hair, and the answer, it seems, is largely not much. A couple of the papers touch on the particular ethical issues raised by treating human hairs, but most of them focused on hair as a material rather than on its original source, that is whether it comes from an animal or a human. This focus may stem from the fact that the conference was jointly organised by the Icon Ethnography and Textiles groups. I found that there was a strong focus in the papers on ethnographic material and even on taxidermy and not so much on archaeology. The exception was a paper by Anna Harrison on the conservation and mounting of archaeological objects and human remains containing hair, which I'll talk about more later. The introductory paper, A Brief History and Usage of Hair in Textile Collections by Marion Kite, gives an idea of the sheer variety of objects that may contain hair, from judicial wigs to horsehair stuffed up holstery, and from decorative embroidery to mourning jewellery. This paper even includes a photo of some 10th century lace made from human hair, which can be found in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Some of the most useful papers for me were those by Bob Child, um, one about the insect pests that eat hair, and Kerry Allen, an introduction to the identification of animal hairs. These sorts of papers are not particularly original, and they certainly don't give any information that can't be found elsewhere. However, they're of immense practical benefit to conservators. It's so useful to have all this information gathered together in a single article. If you're faced with some unknown animal hairs, it's great to be able to refer to Kerry Allen's article about ID techniques rather than having to trawl through more technical manuals about the structure and composition of different hair types. Similarly, if you're trying to assess what the insect pests' threats are to your furs collection, it's really useful to have them all gathered into a single article, especially one with clear photos. If you work with natural history collections, you may find Simon Moore's paper in this book on cleaning the fur of taxidermy specimens useful. He discusses the risks of soiling, different approaches to cleaning and some of the issues raised by these. No conservation conference book would be complete without some case study papers, and this volume has three. Charlotte Ridley's paper describes some of the diverse hair and fur objects found in the Horniman Museum, including a Victorian hairwork bracelet, wigs from Europe and Fiji, a Ugandan headdress and a taxidermy specimen of a terrier. 
Ridley has lots of interesting anthropological observations about hair, particularly its associations with ritual, mourning and, re and remembrance. Kimberly Collins Payno expands on this theme in a paper describing the conservation of two human hair wigs that come from Baroque Holy Child devotional sculptures. As well as a detailed account of their treatment, this paper contains much careful and fascinating research about these sculptures, particularly about the significance of these human hair wigs. Collins Payno describes how the faithful invested themselves both physically and psychologically in the care of their holy child sculptures. They made and repaired rich silk clothing and accessories that were embroidered with gold and silver thread, including shoes, socks and underwear. In Flanders, Germany, Italy and Spain, the nuns were encouraged to caress, cuddle, kiss, bathe, walk and play with them. It seems that the wigs were in part a way of making these sculptures even more realistic, but, as the author notes, they were also a personal offering to the Virgin Mary, often made using hair cut from and donated by children. She concludes, Human hair wigs can be extremely important symbolic offerings to these objects of devotion, tangible evidence of the very intimate bond between the sculpture and the faithful. I really enjoyed reading this very thoughtful research about the context of these sculptures and I felt that it added to my understanding and appreciation of the conservation treatment that followed. The final case study by Anna Harrison describes three projects involving the conservation of archaeological objects containing hair. The first project was the conservation of various textile fragments and bindings, including three woven human hair mats made in Sudan in the 6th to the 8th century AD. These mats, each of them over a metre long, were used as burial shrouds, although Harrison notes that at least one of them was used in life as well, as evidenced by an original repair. As a woven textile, the treatment and display of these mats was very influenced by prevailing practices in textile conservation, something that was really interesting for me as an objects conservator to read. The second project in this paper was the conservation of over 40 naturally mummified human remains from the fourth cataract region of northern Sudan, dated to the medieval period. This is actually the project that Barbara Wills talks about in her interview in this podcast episode. Harrison describes some of the particular challenges raised by working with this kind of material, particularly the tendency of Teflon tape, which was used to support fragile body parts and hair, to become statically charged when it's stretched. If you've ever rubbed a balloon against a synthetic jumper and then put it to your head, you'll know the problems caused by combining static and hair. The BM conservators pre-treated the Teflon tape with an anti-static pistol, this is a bit of kit that's new to me, but it's certainly going on my list of conservation things I might need to buy one day. The final project was the conservation of an 18th dynasty ancient Egyptian wig made from human hair. As Anna Harrison says in her conclusion, these projects demonstrate how interdisciplinary approaches have contributed to our understanding of the objects and human remains in order to reach appropriate conservation solutions. As for the book itself, it's very nicely produced. It's a small, slim paperback, only 120 pages long. It's a format that will be familiar to anyone who's seen any of the other archetype publications that have been produced in association with the Icon Ethnography Group. The book is printed on nice, heavy paper, and it's clearly laid out. The overall impression is one of quality and durability. I was particularly impressed with the image reproduction, there are really high quality photographs and they're in full colour throughout. Conservation as a discipline thrives on visual information and it makes huge difference when the figures in a book are so clear. The preface to the book promises that the papers in this volume will not only provide an insight into the complex chemistry of hair and the expertise required to identify and conserve it, but also the ethical issues that arise from working with hair. This is quite an ambitious aim and I'm not quite sure that this volume fulfilled it. However, it would be a great addition to any conservator's bookshelf, especially if you're ever likely to deal with ethnographic artefacts, human remains, taxidermy, or just any of the many museum oddities that contain human or animal hair in some form. 
It provides a great introduction to the subject, some ingenious and well-planned treatments, and lots of solid information about the structure, identification and preservation of hair. So I don't want to split hairs, sorry, or give it the brush off, sorry. I heartily recommend this book, sorry, sorry, sorry. The Conservation of Hair is edited by Louise Bacon, Emilia Kingham, Deborah Phipps and Vicky Purewal and was published by Archetype Publications in 2015. It retails for £25 and can be ordered through the Archetype website www.archetype.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We're The C Word and you'll be listening to Christina Rosaic, Chloe Rumsey and me, Jenny Mathiasen. Special thanks to Barbara Wills. You can check out our website at cword.show, tweet us at The C Word Podcast or simply email us on thecwordpodcast at gmail.com. The intro and outro music is Spring by DD Mystic, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. This has been a Wooden Dice production.